Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is August uh, 7th, Sunday, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to another action-packed edition of the Pan-African Journal. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the role of the United States State Department in seeking uh, to undermine Africa's relations with Russia and China. The former Ivorian President Laurent Gbagbo has been pardoned uh, by the current head of state and his successor, Alassane Ouattara. We'll have details on that report as well. Stolen artwork uh, from the West African state of Benin is being returned uh, by the British imperialists. And the East African state of Kenya is preparing for a presidential election this coming Tuesday. In the second hour, we continue our month-long focus on Black August, uh, the commemoration of the struggle against enslavement, colonialism, neocolonialism, imperialism, and racism. And, of course, uh, we will be reexamining the alliance between African and indigenous people in a war fought for decades in the southeast of the United States during the early 19th century. In addition, we pay tribute uh, to Albert Woodfox, a former Black Panther Party member, a former longtime political prisoner uh, who joined the ancestors just recently. Finally, we uh, analyzed uh, the myth of the Chinese debt trap in Africa. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, We're going to take a musical interlude uh, with the TPOK Jazz Orchestra, uh, led by Francois Makedi, and uh, also uh, participating Prince Yulu, Keba Na Matrak. This is music uh, from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Let's listen in.
la bijou Nazali na tango te na tuna bandai Mama yo 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 Yenini na tuna bandama Mwana mitenjo Pano yenina na tembe Pona chini uko Na poma likozi andapo Apitango ya polo bayu
TPOK Jazz Orchestra uh, from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and uh, that featured uh, Prince Yulu, and uh, that was music uh, that was released uh, in 1981, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, uh, August the 7th. 2022, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire reports, and of course, our lead story uh, deals with the ongoing uh, efforts uh, by U.S. imperialism and Western imperialism in in general to undermine uh, the role of the People's Republic of China and the Russian Federation on the African continent. A special uh, U.S. envoy for the Horn of Africa, Mike Hammer, completed his Africa trip, including visits to Egypt. He also went to West Asia uh, in the United Arab Emirates and, of course, in the Horn of Africa in Ethiopia. This was just this last past Monday. Uh, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is expected to travel um, and is traveling this week. Uh, He was in South Africa today. He also uh, is visiting the Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda. Now, Africa is full of hope and development uh, and developmental vitality. Uh, driven by the strong impotence of China-Africa cooperation, 20 African countries have achieved an annual gross domestic product growth rate of over 5% uh, before the COVID-19 pandemic. However, it is regrettable that the world today is confronted with profound changes and a pandemic, both unseen in a century. The Ukraine crisis triggered by geopolitics and a Cold War mentality has seriously damaged the security of global industrial supply and capital change and uh, led uh, to a global food, energy, and financial crisis, making the people around the world, especially those in Africa and other less developed countries, innocent victims. We should remain uh, particularly vigilant Uh, that developed countries have concentrated their attention and funds on ideological and block confrontation and politicized mutual beneficial 
economic and trade cooperation, which has further marginalized the African continent and made African people suffer from the severe production and survival crisis as well as the threat of famine. The motives of Western policy towards Africa are impure. Western countries led by the United States do not want to see Africa realize self-sustainable development, nor do they want to see the rapid development of China-Africa cooperation. They are worried about China's growing influence on the African continent, which was brought about by increased China-Africa cooperation on an organizational level. What they can do is fabricate lies, mislead international public opinion, and make every attempt to undermine the friendly and mutual beneficial cooperation between China and Africa. The United States and other Western countries have established a number of initiatives or cooperation plans with the African continent, claiming to increase infrastructure investment in Africa and other developing countries. However, all of them are aimed at hedging against the influence of the China's Belt and Road Initiative, the BRI, rather than truly supporting Africa's own self-sustainable development. And you can read this article in its entirety uh, on the Pan-African Newswire website. And on other news uh, taking place on the African continent, in West Africa, President of the Ivory Coast, Alassane Ouattara, has pardoned his predecessor, Laurent Gbagbo, uh, who was facing a 20-year jail sentence for political unrest. In a statement uh, yesterday to mark the 62nd anniversary of the country's independence, Ouattara said the move was in the interest of reinforcing social cohesion. Ouattara also asked for Gbagbo's bank account to be frozen and for his life annuity to be paid. Gbagbo became president of the Ivory Coast in 2000, but was arrested at the aegis of French imperialism uh, in 2011 uh, at the same time that uh, the Pentagon, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization had declared war on the North African state of Libya. It's a very similar situation that took place in Cote d'Ivoire. Civil conflict uh, during 2011 uh, between uh, supporters of Gbagbo and Ouattara led to the death it is estimated around 3,000 people. Bagbo was acquitted by the International Criminal Court for alleged war crimes committed during that imperialist-inspired conflict. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. In other news, a London museum agreed Sunday to return a collection of Benin bronzes looted in the late 19th century from what is now Nigeria as a cultural institution throughout Britain come under pressure to repatriate artifacts acquired during the colonial era. The Hornemann Museum and Gardens in southeast London said that it would transfer a collection of 72 items to the Nigerian government. A decision comes after Nigeria's National Commission for Museums and Monuments formally asked for the artifacts to be returned earlier this year and following a consultation with community members, artists, and school children in Nigeria and the United Kingdom, the museum said, The evidence is very clear that these objects were acquired through force. External consultation supported our view that it is both moral and appropriate to return their ownership to uh, the Federal Republic of Nigeria. Eve Solomon, chair of the museum's board of trustees, said in a statement, the Horniman is pleased to be able to take this step, and we look forward to working with the NCMM to secure long-term K-12 
care for uh, these precious artifacts. And finally, in the East African state of Kenya, uh, people are voting uh, in two days to choose a successor to President Uhuru Kenyatta after a decade in power. The race is close and could go to a runoff for the first time in uh, post-colonial history. One top candidate is Raila Odinga, an opposition leader in his fifth run for the presidency, who is a supporter supported by his former rival, uh, Uhuru Kenyatta, the incumbent president. The other is William Ruto, Kenyatta's deputy who fell out with the president. Both tend to focus uh, far more on domestic issues, raising the question of how either will follow up on Kenyatta's diplomatic efforts to quell the tensions in neighboring uh, Federal Republic, Democratic Republic of Ethiopia, or disputes between uh, Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo. And uh, you can read all of these articles in their entirety uh, by merely logging on to the Pan-African Newswire. And uh, that will conclude this segment uh, of the Pan-African Newswire. And in concluding this segment, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global areas. If you'd like to log on, to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, uh, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And by logging on to uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal, not only can you have access to uh, today's program for Sunday, August 7th, uh, 2022, but well over... 1,100 other archived editions of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. At this time, we'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
of uh, Love, uh, led by uh, legendary uh, guitarist and vocalist and songwriter and producer Arthur Lee. And uh, that was from their fourth album entitled For Sale. And of course, uh, that song was entitled August. And we are indeed in the month of August, uh, Black August, uh, which uh, commemorates the historical legacy of the struggle of African people against enslavement colonialism, neocolonialism, imperialism, institutional racism, and all forms of exploitation and oppression. And uh, right now we want to move into a 
historical reexamination of the so-called Black Seminole Wars against the United States government uh, during uh, the early 19th century, uh, where an alliance of African and indigenous people fought a war of resistance against conquest uh, in the state of Florida. Let's listen uh, to this very, very important historical examination. This evening on The Rock Newman Show, the Black Seminoles of Florida participated in one of the most successful slave revolts in U.S. history. Historian Dr. Anthony Dixon has studied this group of Native Americans and blacks and joins us to share their struggles and determination and how they resisted the efforts of the U.S. military to keep them enslaved. Coming up right now on The Rock Newman Show. Welcome to the Rock Newman Show from the campus of historic Howard University. I'm Rock Newman, and it is my desire to inspire you with personal stories of extraordinary achievement. In the early 1950s, Hollywood films not only depicted Native Americans as savages, but the roles were often played by white actors. Let's take a look. I bring him a most important message. I do not trust you. Silence your tongue, young one. He has been in council with his chiefs. Come, we will find him. My guest is an African-American history professor with expert knowledge about the efforts to enslave the entire black Seminole population in Florida and the Second Seminole War. Joining me now is author and historian Dr. Anthony Dixon. Welcome to the Rock Newman Show. Good afternoon, brother. Thank you for having me. Let me say from the outset that um, your book here called uh, Florida's Florida's Negro War is one I really wish we had several hours to examine this evening. The Seminole Wars are um, little-known history facts, much mischaracterized when it has been talked about, and I want to get into I want to get into all of that. Before I do, though, I want to get a little uh, introduce my audience to to you, Doctor okay. Doctor Anthony Dixon. Um, we were talking last night, and you said something that you would have no idea how much it resonated with me because you mentioned one of my favorite characters in all of American history, and that is Jackie Robinson. Okay. And then you mentioned another one named Mary McLeod Bethune. Yes. So if you wouldn't mind. As we start this here, if you would share what it, how their paths crossed in the great state of Florida. Okay. Um, well, of course, Mary, Mary McLeod came into Florida in the early 1900s, and she established a, good, a school for African-American girls, uh, and it went on to become what we call now Bethune-Cookman University. 
the relationship between the two was such. Um, of course, Jackie Robinson played for uh, played baseball for the Dodgers. Their spring training was in Daytona. Mm-hmm. However, um, Jackie could not stay in in Daytona. There was there wasn't a rooming house. There wasn't a hotel that would accept him. Uh, so he would spend, initially he started spending uh, his time in a nearby city called Samford. Uh, if you recall, this is where Trayvon Martin yes. was murdered. Right. Um, and he would have to ride over from Samford into Daytona for practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but through, in time rather, um, he developed a relationship with Mary McLeod. And so uh, he began to spend more more time on campus at Bethune Cookman, and he was welcomed there. So he didn't have to drive all the way back to Sanford mm-hmm. uh, every day, especially after a, a long day of practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was allowed to um, come over to Bethune Cookman, mm-hmm. and he began to spend a lot more time with Mary McLeod. Uh, by this time, she was uh, toward the end of her career yeah. and, and life, yeah. um, for that matter. Uh, but they still developed a very good relationship, and we still have, and we do have, rather, archival material to attest to that relationship. Yeah, and th- where he would come visit her at the house yes. is a home that she worked from and created a small uh, museum of sorts initially in a room. No, what she did was she created a foundation. Uh-huh. She created a foundation on her in, at her home. She added a uh, room to it as an office. Yeah. And through that, she began to continue her work for the African American community. Uh, and when I say African American community, I mean as a whole, uh, with the National Council of Negro Women. Yeah. Um, her work with the Black Cabinet. Yeah. Um, subsequent work years later mm-hmm. uh, through those relationships all of those things she culminated into a foundation right and so uh, the how the home itself um, yeah. has now become a museum uh-huh. so the foundation is still there um, NCNW still comes on campus yeah um, we still do uh, some of carry on some of her work some of the community work that she she started uh, but we also now interpret her life through through the house and through the museum. And so now her her house is a museum itself. And who's the executive director? Uh, I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have the executive director of the Mary McLeod Bethune House and Museum. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that as well as the uh, archives that is located right next door in the, build, in mm-hmm. the uh, library. Right. And right. so we have the university archives that has the complete Mary McLeod Bethune collection, mm-hmm. uh, which includes her work here yeah. in D.C. Have you been to, by any chance, the uh, National Council of Negro Women building here, offices here in Washington, D.C.? No, I have Man, not. Man, uh, it, 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 it was the first owned property by African Americans uh, right downtown here on Pennsylvania Avenue. Oh, yeah, that I did yeah. not one, know. One of, one of our giants, Dorothy Height, Yes. Uh, headed up the uh, National Council of Negro Women for many years, and obviously was, uh, you know, worshipped uh, Mary McLeod Bethune and and carried on in a great tradition. And uh, she put it all together, man. She and her team to to get that building down there. Yes, she did a great job, and she was also um, very close to Mary as well. Yeah. Um, she was a regular guest 
on campus as well uh -huh. um as a few other activists and and uh other people uh known people uh african Americans um that we give notoriety to yeah. and I'll be honest, not all relationships were glitz and glamour sure, and gold. Sure, you know, um, sure. relationship come to mind quickly. Um, Zora Neale, uh -huh. Zora Neale Hurston, yes. actually taught at Bethune Cookman mm -hmm. um, for a short stint. Mm -hmm. um, but we find that that relationship, you know, two bright stars don't always yeah. <laughs> shine together. Yeah. So um, her stint at Bethune Cookman was short, mm -hmm. uh, but nevertheless. Um, it was impactful. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you, you, uh, you, you wrote this book, uh, Florida's Negro War, uh, Black Seminoles and the Second Seminole War, 1835 to 1842. Give us a little bit about your background and please tell us how you became interested in uh, publishing uh, this book. First, um, I've... Uh, even in undergrad, uh, history was my major, uh, Afro-Am studies was my minor, mm -hmm. um, and I worked, I had the, the honor of working under Dr. Larry Rivers, uh, who actually wrote the uh, anthology piece on slavery in Florida. And so when I returned to uh, Florida A&M uh, from my undergrad, after receiving it, I returned for my master's, I became his graduate assistant. Mm -hmm. And in that, he was always sending me uh, to the library, sending me to the state archives, different places. And so for me, I became interested. My area um, was slavery and reconstruction. Just, just to clear, uh, Dr. Larry Rivers was president of Fort Valley State? Yes. Uh -huh. The same okay. doctor, he left mm -hmm. from Florida A&M uh -huh. and went on to become president of Fort Valley State. Right. Um, now, in that... Um, my studies for and uh, looking at um, slavery and reconstruction, um, I started then kind of narrowing the focus, and I started looking at resistance and uh, resistance to slavery and oppression. Mm -hmm. And so, in doing so, I came across this this very unique, outstanding story of African Americans who actually resisted. Uh, slavery, they re re resisted their re-enslavement, they resisted the enslavement of their, um, of their offspring, of their children and their descendants, and they ended up going into a war, partnering with the Seminole Native Americans and going into a war uh, that we now consider the longest and deadliest Native American war fought on U.S. soil. But we are also now looking at it and then examining it as possibly, and what I like to call, um, the largest slave rebellion on U.S. soil. We talk about the Point Coupe, we talk about uh, Nat Turner, and of course we talk about Denmark and his, the, um, Denmark the fail, right, mm -hmm. Denmark Vesey mm -hmm. and the failed attempt. Mm -hmm. But we don't talk about this group of people who actually, um, absconded, got their freedom, retained their freedom, fought the U.S. government for seven long years, and were able to keep their freedom. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when we look at it in that, that vernacular and, and we start looking at the dynamics from that perspective, we have, to, we have to start looking at the Second Seminole War 
as a, a slave rebellion. Yeah. And and, mm-hmm, and furthermore, not only if we look at it as a slave rebellion, we now have to say that it is the largest. Yeah. On U.S. soil. Yeah. And you know, on the clip that was played, when I first saw it, it just made my head explode because it, it's titled Seminole War Cries and it said thunder and fury of savage vengeance so the depiction back in the 1950s up until that time and since that time mm-hmm. has so often been just of that that when which speaks to the issue that until the lion is able to write his story the Cap, the, 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 the one the, doing the capturing is always going to be glorified. And that was just so prominent when you see these kinds of films about this, about this war and about this time. In your book, one of the first things that caught me was you write, you write black maroon settlements in the wilderness existed by utilizing a pan-Africanist perspective in the social, political religious and military organization of their communities. And you say that, why? Uh, given their roots themselves mm-hmm. initially, um, most of your initial Florida Maroons are actually uh, abscond runaways. I was going to ask you to describe Maroons. Okay. Yeah. Maroons are basically enslaved people who decide uh, to run away, to abscond from the plantation, and eke out the existence in the wilderness um, however uh, they can. Yeah. And so they go into the most um, what we would call treacherous portions, especially for uh, Europeans. And when I say that, I mean the, uh, particularly the swampy areas because uh, the swamps and water, of course, bring the mosquitoes and the mosquitoes would bring um, yellow fever. And Europeans and their descendants were highly susceptible to, uh, to yellow fever. Mm-hmm. So they would specifically go, like the Great Dismal Swamp on the North Carolina-Virginia area, mm-hmm. and then into Florida um, in the different areas in Florida um, for those specific reasons that they could uh, eke out their own existence. Now. Where these people come from are uh, uh, primarily out of the Georgia and South Carolina Sea Islands, mm-hmm. and what we call Gullah, mm-hmm. and which is now, uh, of course, the only national heritage area dedicated to African American culture. And we call it the Gullah, Gullah Heritage Corridor, right. Gullah Geechee um, National Heritage Corridor. Now, these people, uh, your Gullah people, are basically people who take West African languages, because it's now a homogenized group of West Africans sure. now. And so they uh, create a language that we call Geechee, and they incorporate West African culture, West African language, and then they incorporate uh, plantation life, specifically mm. English plantation life, mm-hmm. um, and, of course, English words. And so they created their own culture. We call it Gullah. We call their language Geechee. Now, when these people began to run away, um, they began to head south. I know most people think the uh, Underground Railroad always went north. Right. But the first Underground Railroad actually went south mm-hmm. into 
at that time La Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Spanish held Florida, and they called it La Florida at this right. time. Right. And so because they are arguing, and when I say they, I mean the English and the Spanish, mm -hmm. they are fighting for control over parts of the East Coast. They are actually fighting for e English, all of English and British. The English and the Spanish. Uh, uh, They're uh -huh. fighting. Uh, but I, I, I meant to say, I meant to say the Spanish and the British. Right. The right. Spanish mm -hmm. and the British are mm -hmm. fighting for control over the East Coast, basically. Right. right. Uh, the Spanish have laid claim from as far as Miami all the way up to Newfoundland, um, Canada. Mm -hmm. And of course, the English are disputing that. Yeah. And so, what happens is the Spanish understand that the English survival is based on plantation society that they have placed in on on how well they are going to do in terms of the agriculture mm -hmm. whereas the spanish are looking at the precious commodities mm -hmm. they find the gold and the silver of right. course out in out west yeah and so they're more concerned out west than they are with the east coast mm -hmm. but when the british come and start taking and engulfing the land and claiming it as their own they have to come back and focus. Mm -hmm. And so when they focus, they realize that how the English goes is how their um, slaves go, mm -hmm. how the enslaved, mm -hmm. how many they bring in, how much work they get done. Right. And that is clearly the point of which they are going to build plantation society. Mm -hmm. So what the Spanish do to counter that is that they offer, in uh, 1693, they offer an edict that says any any enslaved person that runs away from the English society right. can come to La Florida and mm -hmm. live for free. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens live is... Live in freedom. Live in freedom. Yes. Live for mm -hmm. free. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. there's, we have two different scenarios there. They say you can go two ways. You can either go into the wilderness, live in, in Florida, in the wilderness, eke mm -hmm. out your own existence. Uh, we only ask that when you see the British, if you see them in the area... Get word to us. Mm -hmm. That's all that we ask. Okay. And then there was a second second offering or second group. Um, they made an offer. Well, a second group arises out of an offer, and they basically say you can live under Spanish authority. You can. You can. Mm -hmm. You can come to St. Augustine, mm -hmm. uh, St. Augustine, Florida, and live under Spanish authority. They built a fort. Um, it's called Fort Mose. Yeah. Uh, it's now a historical site. And uh, the thing about it is, of course, because it's Spanish and you're going under the authority, they had to. They had one um, one main rule is that they had to become Catholic. Mm -hmm. Right. So we see cultural differences starting Catholicism, to right, right starting to sure. to come about between the two groups of um, the two groups of runaways. Mm -hmm. Now, those that are living in the wilderness, though. They are eking out their own existence, and they are retaining Gullah culture, mm -hmm. and they are keeping that Gullah culture. And so we see Gullah at this point, once it gets into Florida, and it goes from Florida to the Bahamas and to uh, Texas to Oklahoma and ultimately to Nacimiento, Mexico, there's a small group of Gullah people that actually do leave Fort Mose. And they end up in Cuba, and they have a a uh, community there mm -hmm. as well. And so what we see is Gullah then turning into a diaspora once it comes into Florida. Mm -hmm. And so what then happens also is while they are creating these small villages and eking out this society, there are also Native Americans yeah. that are 
that are trying to escape plantation society as well mm -hmm. out of the same area. Mm -hmm. um, we see the larger numbers, of course, coming um, after the um, Yamasee War. Mm -hmm. now, um, now, if I could stop you for a second, because yes. you say, you know, the Native Americans um, are trying to escape plantation existence also. Right. And, uh, because what has happened is they who originally occupied the land mm -hmm. now was were having their was having their land taken away from them yes and all not but and then captured by those who took the land right and mm -hmm. it's it's also more than that as well i know that's the most important thing mm -hmm. that taking your land and taking parts of your freedom, mm -hmm. but also it's the encroachment of the society. You see, the basic problem, and I won't go too far on tangent there, but the basic problem between Europeans and Native Americans was property use and land rights. Mm -hmm. That was the basic problem. They had two very different concepts. Right. Native Americans did not believe that you could own the land, right. whereas, of course, Europeans, you own what you can get or take. Right. 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 And so under that, those basic um, ideologies, the conflict in those basic ideologies, we see everything else stemming from mm -hmm. when, in terms of that relationship. Right. Now, when we look at relationship <coughs> between Native Americans and blacks or Africans at this time, mm -hmm. it has to develop mm -hmm. because uh, initially all Native Americans see are these black people on their land, clearing their land. Yeah. And so they had to come to the understanding that these black people, these Africans, were being forced mm -hmm. to do so. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't these Africans that were actually encroaching your land. It's actually the people who were driving the force and, and uh, were manipulating and quote-unquote owning them. Mm -hmm. And so... L let, me, let me stop you there, because mm -hmm. I, I, I want to give the viewers an opportunity to see how you succinctly put this. As you we talked about the definition of maroons. You said these maroon communities established close relationships with the na with the neighboring Native Americans. These two communities lived for the most part in harmony and provided the foundation for what would later become the Seminole Nation. I, I want to go further. Um, these the the culture was created by fusing various African traditions which resulted in Pan-Africanist ethos within the community. This type of Pan-African culture existed with minimal European interference. These Pan-Africanist cultural traits manifested themselves in a variety of cultural forms that distinguished their communities from both Spanish society and Native American communities, regardless of the close proximity. Research has shown that these cultural traits were most prevalent in com in communication, artistic expression, and religion. Yeah, um, and uh, each one communication um, with the Gullah, what they did, um, and this is where we really start seeing Gullah turn into a diaspora, because they are cohabitating, and nothing happens overnight, mm -hmm. right? They are they are coming down through what was considered the buffer zone then, yeah. and of course it ends up becoming the last 13 colony becoming Georgia. Yeah. And so in that buffer zone, we start seeing a lot of Native Americans and uh, partic particularly the smaller bands of Native Americans, not the large ones, the Creeks, the Cherokee, but initially the smaller ones, the Hittite, 
and the Yuchi, the smaller bands, mm -hmm. um, and those that are smaller factions out of the Yamasee, um, or Yamasee, some say, um, what's happening is they began to uh, cohabitate a little bit, but moreover, they're beginning to, uh, to find ways to communicate better with each other. Mm -hmm. So what we see is now the Gullah, the Gullah dialect, Gullah language being starting to incorporate Native American words. Mm -hmm. And so once that happens, we see a metamorphosis, and we don't call that Gullah. We actually call that the Afro-Seminole Creole um, language. Okay. And so that is the mixture between Gullah, mm -hmm. which again is the West African and um, English words, mm -hmm. and now we have certain Native American words that are put into it, and that is what changes it. And that's what really puts us on that road to saying uh, Gullah is a diaspora. Mm -hmm. So now in that, right, back to the uh, relationship itself, uh, this cohabitation continues to grow. Yes. Because plantation society is encroaching upon Native Americans, mm -hmm. and it's encroaching in that they're chasing away the food, mm -hmm. which means they're changing their way of life. Mm -hmm. And so they are also having to depend on these runaways as well to show them how to actually plant different crops, how to rotate different crops mm -hmm. in order for sustainability now. Right. Because they can't rely on the hunting mm -hmm. that they have done for eons or years prior. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and let me interject, please. Because you, when you say plantation life, I want my viewers to make sure they understand what that is. That plantation life is about enslaving people to be able to grow the plantations. Right. And, but it's also turning for Native Americans is turning the land mm -hmm. into an agrarian society. Yeah. See, all those open fields where the deer ran and the, beer, and the bears went where they could have plenty of food, rabbits and all of that yeah. are now being chased out because you have enslaved people who are now turning over the ground, mm -hmm. turning it all into a uh, field. Mm -hmm. And so that is also the encroachment, sure. that they are losing sure. their food supply as well. Right. Right. And so they are being forced out of the area. Mm -hmm. um, they're being forced out of the area as well as um, plantation society grows. So they began to cohabitate. Now, here's, I, I, gotta have, I have to tell you this, and this, this is important, and it kind of leads back to why you also get some of these negative um, <coughs> words We've always had those general savage terms for Native Americans, but uh, the ironic thing about this particular case and the ironic thing about the Seminoles is the Seminoles are homo a homogenous group of Native Americans themselves. Mm -hmm. They are actually, <clears throat> the, the majority of them are former Creeks. Mm -hmm. uh, what happens is there's a large schism in the Creek Nation. The mm -hmm. Creek Nation breaks. Mm -hmm. You have your upper Creeks that live in northern part of present-day Alabama. They're up, of course, by the uh, mountains up in that area. Mm -hmm. And then you have your lower Creeks mm -hmm. that are down in that corner between Georgia, Florida, and Alabama. Mm -hmm. Right? And so what happens is the, the ones in the south, they begin to accept plantation society. They even began to buy and trade enslaved people. Mm -hmm. And so they began to not resist plantation, but actually mm -hmm. join and work with plantation society. Mm -hmm. And so the Creeks up north were basically, what are you doing? Yeah. 
We don't own people. We take them as war. We hold them so we won't have to fight them again. We keep their women so we can keep our numbers up. But we don't enslave them for our own living. Yeah. You know, what yeah. are you all doing? Yeah. And so there's this schism. Mm-hmm. And so the northern, northern Creeks pushed themselves, pushed their way, rather, through Alabama. They pushed through the southern Creeks, and they come into Florida. Mm-hmm. And so when they come into Florida, they mix with the other Native Americans that are also running. You have the uh, Miccosukee. Like I said, you have the other smaller bands. You even have some Cherokee that are leaving North Georgia and the yeah. other areas of Georgia, and they're coming um, down into Florida. These are smaller bands, though, that are kind of broken away mm-hmm. because they needed to figure out how they were going to survive as well. Right. And so they become this homogenous group that we call the Seminoles. Uh, and it actually, when you look at the word and you trace it back, Semolina, Cimarron, um, it has different meanings, but the main one is um, Breakaway Creek mm-hmm. or Renegade Creek. Mm-hmm. That's why everything you see with Florida State University and they yeah. say the um, Seminoles, they, every, the first thing you see up on it is Renegade mm-hmm. because that is one of the original terms for Semolina. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a negative term that the Spanish gave, Cimarron, uh, which basically meant wild beast, wild mm-hmm. wild dog. And, and of course, you can understand that it's just like anything else. When you're on the opposite side of the team, you know, yeah. with you the opponent, yeah. it's not going to be a positive word. On right. the other side, right. um, even when we use the word griot, mm-hmm. uh, most people don't know for Europeans, they thought the word griot was a very negative word. It was a negative term. Mm-hmm. But we embrace that term. Mm-hmm. And so it's the same, same thing here. When we look at the words like um, savage and all of that good stuff, it's that opposite side of the fence type of thing. When part of just as you're describing here, and we haven't gotten we haven't gotten you know into the book yet, where you really start to talk about what is the 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 violence, the the continual grabbing of the land, the 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 the, sla- the slaughter of the people. Mm-hmm. And to deal with the book, you know, we will get there. But, you know, just early on, I made a big note when, 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 when you talked about Angola being the first noted town there of the Native American settlements, Angola. And then you go, then on the same page is 18, in 1821, Angola was destroyed and the town burned. And we, in terms of the U.S. military, mm-hmm. and again, its occupation, just throughout history, when either Native Americans have been involved or African Americans have been involved, there is the burning of a town, man. There's the, there's the slaughter of a people. And so on, what is this, on page 11, mm-hmm. I just felt, you know, without dramatizing it, you expose the terror when one mm-hmm. thinks for a second that here are people who live every waking hour who one have been imported as slaves, others who were the original inhabitants of the land, mm-hmm. and every waking hour they must be mindful of the tyranny that is coming at them with 
fire and fury that they have no experience with for a very long time. I'm sorry. Let me jump in there first, the point of clarification. Angola was actually a black Seminole village. It sat mm-hmm. next to it. Mm-hmm. Um, Native Americans lived outside of Angola. Um, and you are right. You see that time and time again. Um, even in, in this period with my, with my book and dealing with the black Seminoles, there are actually two other instances where um, villages are being burned, that they can just completely burn it down. And so we see um, that as a regular tactic, yeah. you know, that that is a regular tactic that was used all the way up through the 19, we can, we can trace that all the way through, all the way to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and other places, that this is when communities, uh, when African-American communities are out of the graces, yeah. <laughs> so to speak, yeah. of the larger white community, yeah. Yeah. they simply get rid of it. Yeah. And they do it by normally by just destroying the whole thing. And and we all know fire is, is a pretty good tool and it's pretty quick and easy. Yeah. So, you know, I don't want to jump around too much but I, but I want to okay. do this because as I was reading it I wrote a I wrote in big letters the the the, the legitimacy of the conversation of reparations I mean that's a that's a whole nother conversation that's a whole nother show but when you just go back and look at the basics here of what people had and the the slaughter that took place and the, 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 the stealing by force of land, by murder and slaughter and genocide, that issue of, 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 of reparations, just I, I couldn't get past, what am I on, page 18. It's like, man, does this ever make a case without trying to do it for reparations? And I'll say this briefly so we can, we can stay on topic yeah. about reparations. We have different instances. This this is clearly a case. Um, we have another case I'll mention in just a second. The issue is there's always been uh, opposition, right? And it, that opposition to it comes in this idea of quantifiable measurement, right? How can we quantify things if we really want to say reparations, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's been the biggest tool against reparation, right? Mm-hmm. But the thing about it is we actually can. Mm-hmm. There are instances where we can quantify. Um, one in particular I always use, think about all of those years African Americans went paying taxes to state schools that they couldn't go to. Yeah. You see, so yeah. there are things that are yeah. quantifiable yeah. when we can look at, repa- when talking mm-hmm. about reparations. Yeah. So this whole notion about it not being able to be done because we can never quantify, it's, that's a farce. That's, yeah. that's just something yeah. to hold us off yeah. like everything else. You're right. That is another conversation. Yeah. You know, so, 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 I, so I, you know, I make notes here. I said, you know, the desire to be free, the desire to be free and the fear of enslavement that is going on. And I, and I, and I just underlined something, you know, it says runaway slaves. Again, as we lead into how the, the, the freed blacks, the free blacks, the runaway slaves, and the, 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 the Native Americans, the natives, 
how they became Seminoles and then came to the Seminole War, just leading up, leading up to that, again, is this idea of folks living, living and being all the time in terror. They're all the time living with the sense of terror that is just around the corner because these folks who get depicted in these movies, what they are, calling themselves United States military, calling themselves plantation society, or the rest, are or the, terrorists. Or the militia. Or the militia. Are terrorists. Yeah. Terrorizing the population. And you have to understand that it's a progression as well. Yes. It's a progression. Um, that's why we ended up in three Seminole Wars. Mm -hmm. um, because each time, if we can actually see how each Seminole War directly affected the growth of Florida and mm -hmm. Florida becoming what it is today. Mm -hmm. um, the first Seminole War opened up plantation society for Florida. Opened up plantation society. Yeah. Opened up where land owners came in and built wealth off of slaves, off the back of slaves. And taking land from the Native Americans. And taking land, yes. To do so. Right. Um, and so what we see with that, first, with that first war is, with the first Seminole War, they get to clear out the Native Americans out of North Florida, uh, particularly the area from um, Tallahassee to Gainesville, mm -hmm. because that land was considered as fertile and in some places more fertile than even Georgia. And at this time, Georgia was becoming cotton king. And so the expansion into Florida, they figured, had to be done. Mm -hmm. And so when they removed them, we see plantation society coming in, but also this is when Florida becomes a territory. Florida becomes a territory just after the first Seminole War. And so, you're right. And you're right. And Once Florida became a United, uh, became a United States possession in 1821, mm -hmm. whites were infuriated by black-Indian relationship. Thus, from 1821 to 1835, relations between Seminoles and whites steadily de deteriorated. So how dare you inferior people have, uh -huh. a, have a civil relationship? And not only that, continue to work together against us. Yeah. See, that's the... That's the thing it up. But they gave them that common, you know, the enemy of my um, enemy. Yeah. Right? Sure. And so um, what we see is that first war, right, mm -hmm. clearing out the land, yeah. Florida becoming a territory. Mm -hmm. The second one, the one that the book is based on, that ends up being a seven-year war. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the issue with that. We have Native Americans who are agreeing to leave. Then we have Native Americans who said we're not going to leave. Right. Um, and one in particular is Osceola. Mm -hmm. um, he's not a chief, but because of his war attributes, he becomes a war chief. Mm -hmm. And so you have those who are willing to stay who want to stay and don't want to leave. Mm -hmm. But at the same token, you have uh, your black Seminole, right? right? And at this point, uh, we stop calling them Maroons, and we call them Seminoles because they now make a concerted effort to not only live together, yeah. we have um, familiar relationships now. It mm -hmm. usually happens at the top, but mm -hmm. they're still doing it. They're sure. cohabitating together, mm -hmm. all of those good things. And right? marrying. 
Yes, intermarriage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. usually done at the higher level, sure. but sure. Um, between chiefs and whatnot, yeah. but it's, it's being done. Um, and so at that point, right, you got two different things that are going on, right? You got the Native Americans who want to keep the land. You got the blacks who want to keep their freedom, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so when they go into this war in 1835, is is because they are fueled, of course, by the Indian removal policy um, from Andrew Jackson, mm-hmm. uh, which spent who who got his political career in Florida as well, mm-hmm. and this is where he actually got the concept to develop the um, Indian removal policy yes. by helping Florida get rid of the um, Seminoles the first round in mm-hmm. North Florida. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, once this happens, the war becomes evident that it is not about removing Native Americans, but it is more so about getting these blacks back into slavery. Profoundly so. Not only for the work, because there is a number that could change things in terms of work. There's Mm -hmm. a large enough workforce there that Mm -hmm. could be garnered, Mm -hmm. right? But not only that, not only the workforce, it is the concept, right? It's the idea that you have an area that is growing into a colony that could be a set, go from a settlement to a colony that could go to its own nation mm-hmm. based on the fact of the opposition of slavery, mm-hmm. meaning our slaves as plantation, our enslaved people, yeah. right, will get the notion to go to Florida mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there is a black nation there. Yeah. And so what happens uh, what we find is at the end of the first Seminole War mm-hmm. uh, and before the second, right, toward the end of the first, mm-hmm. um, well, actually the, the first Seminole, excuse me, let me get it straight because we want to get the timeline right. There are There is a fort, mm-hmm. and it's called Negro Fort. It was yeah. left by yeah. the British yeah. to these blacks. Yeah. And for this period of time, that is a progression mm-hmm. to a nation. Mm-hmm. You start out as a settlement, mm-hmm. then you go to a colony, yeah. the colony gets a fort, yes. then it grows and it develops, mm-hmm. and the next thing you know, mm-hmm. you can get, uh, your colony can develop into whatever else you want. If you mm-hmm. want it to be its own country, you want it to be its sure. own nation, sure. you could. Right. And so that was by far the worst idea. That was the worst. Mm-hmm. The most troubling. Well, that was, right, that yeah. was the most troubling, mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. the worst, that was mm-hmm. the worst scenario, mm-hmm. let's say that, that'd be better mm-hmm. to say, that was the worst scenario mm-hmm. for plantation society, sure. to have these, because as long, they figured as long as they were down there in Florida living free, mm-hmm. then they would always have to watch theirs, and they would just continuously run, right. and then plantation society would start to demise, mm-hmm. and they all and some even express the ending of plantation society mm-hmm. if this continues to go on in Florida. Mm-hmm. That this would end plantation society. And so, society. Th- something I wanted to uh, examine here, um, because now you're saying, you know, we're we're we're, we're into the first war. Um, this, there's a contemplation of the second, um, but in the meantime, there had been some agreements. There had been in uh, for those. For those who agreed to move out, there had been treaties. Right. There, 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 Two main treaties. There had been, there had been agreements. Mm-hmm. And how did those who were the oppressor mm-hmm. handle those treaties? Um, 
Well, they were lopsided. Let's just call it like it is. They were lopsided treaties. Um, the first one that got the uh, Seminoles removed out of North Florida, uh, pushed them down into Central Florida, um, around the area between present-day Orlando and Tampa. And when they got down there, uh, many of them didn't like the land. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of lakes in that area, swampy. Yeah. Um, Native Americans didn't care for that. Again, in terms of lo 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 logistics here, they were occupying the most fertile land where they had where they had yeah. coastlines See, that's where they were able well, to not do only trade. The yeah. coastline yeah. and that land just below Georgia, where basically cotton yes. cotton is becoming king. Yes. Where yeah. that fertile land that yeah. was making cotton become king in mm -hmm. Georgia, mm -hmm. some of that land extended itself in the North Florida. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. they just really were concerned about the northern portion, sure. where that land was the sure. best. Right, right. And so where people, where, where the natives were occupying. Right. Yeah. It was it was Seminole land. Yeah. Though. And so so therefore you got to go off there you and go over go. to some land that's not nearly as fertile, not nearly as productive. Nowhere near. Right. And so they some took the agreement. They took the buyout. They took the payment. All of that good stuff. Went down into the area. Went down into the area. And then realized how bad the land was, how rough it would be to start over down there. And so many of them started returning. They came back saying, no, nah, we're not going for that. Yeah. You all, you know, you pulled a flim flam with that. Yeah. We're not going for it. Yeah. And so then we see other negotiations coming, mm -hmm. right? And so they, the Indian removal policy is starting to, to take place nationally, and Jackson is coming into office. He becomes president. So this Indian removal policy is going nationwide. Mm -hmm. And so then the offer then came to actually go out west. Yeah. And see that because that's what they would do. Yeah. They would take Native Americans who are out west and they bring them to the East Coast. Mm -hmm. This is how Geronimo ends up in Florida. Mm -hmm. They bring Geronimo to Florida and they take Osceola mm -hmm. and take him out west. To present-day Oklahoma, which back then we called the Arkansas Territory, right. and so when this happens, right, mm -hmm. when they start coming back, they say no, this is not going to happen. Then they show them the land out west, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Again, Native Americans are split. Mm -hmm. Some Native sure. Americans say right. take the buyout because they're going to kill us all. Mm -hmm. do, or, do we really want to be the ones responsible for, you know, ending our our existence? Yeah. And then you have the blacks, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The blacks see that land as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. When they go out to the Arkansas Territory and they're, you know, the black Seminole leadership goes out there with the Native American leadership and they look at that land, they see it as an opportunity. The problem is the government didn't have that land in mind for them. It was just for the Native Americans. Mm -hmm. They had planned to round up all of the black Seminoles and return them to slavery. To slavery. Yeah. And so once this was evidently clear, mm -hmm. right, that is what brought the unifying effect in again. Mm -hmm. So even those who were willing to go said, oh, no, we're not going without them. Yeah. Because some of them were their children. Yeah, 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 some yeah. of them were their wives, their yeah. husbands, yeah. grandchildren. Yeah. So they were like, no, we... We're not going out there without them. Mm -hmm. 
And so what happens is negotiations start falling apart, mm-hmm. and we end up in a, in that second war. Okay, and, and I, so I'm glad you say there you bring it to negotiations fall apart. We're in the second war because this time is going by extraordinarily fast. I knew we needed hours for this, but we now just because of the clock need to get to the okay. the, 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 the that that second war, which is okay. the, which is the focus here. And and I think I'd like to examine it in part by calling out three names, Abraham, John Caesar, and John Cavallo, who was better known as, as, as Gopher John. These are, these are Africans. Who goes on to become even more known as John Hoare. That's right. So if you could kind of through their eyes take us or take the audience now into this war, what, what was that? What was at risk, why they were fighting, and what the results were. Okay. So by the time we get, by the time we get to the 1830s, mm-hmm. um, Andrew Jackson is in office. Um, things have just deteriorated to the point where they are fighting now. Yeah. Uh, you have three major bands. Um, there is what we call the St. John's Band, mm-hmm. which is the St. John's River, um, which is on the East Coast. Uh, and the main city on the St. John's River is Jacksonville. Most people think Jacksonville is on the coast. It's actually on the river. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one band. Right. The second band is what we call the Gainesville Band, which is Gainesville, uh, central, north central Florida. Um, it's a little closer to Jacksonville, but we consider it, um, well, a little closer, but it's on your way between Tallahassee and Jacksonville. Mm-hmm. So. So, and that's basically north central Florida again. And then you have your third band, which is in the Tampa area. When they get pushed down Angola, Mm -hmm. uh, that's the Tampa Bay area. So you got your three bands. Mm -hmm. All right. Each one of those men you named represented each one of the the bands in the area. Yes. John Caesar was the oldest because he came out of the oldest area, which was St. John. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, when the... Um, initial enslaved people began to run away and abscond. They came straight down the coast, right. straight into St. Augustine. Right. So they stayed around the St. John's River. Right. All right. John Caesar was a uh, he was an older mm-hmm. older gentleman. We figure him. We have no no pictures of him or anything, but we figure him to be um, early fifties at best, mm-hmm. mid fifties, early sixties. His job was recruitment. Yeah. He was the best recruiter. He would go on doing what we call plantation raids. Yes. He would ra- raid the plantation for supplies, guns, mm-hmm. horses, cattle, all that good stuff. But then he would convince others to mm-hmm. run away. Again, because of the clock. Let me, tell you, let me tell you something. We got four minutes left. Oh, well, I, can, only, I can do it. Only four minutes left. I can do it. I need you to. <laughs> I wish you would have given me the five-minute notice. I would have <laughs> run it then. Okay. But very quickly. hmm Caesar dies John um, Caesar, yes. because he's doing these plantation raids mm-hmm. in 35. Mm-hmm. It's his plantation raids to get the war going, mm-hmm. right? Um, so Caesar dies. He's an older. Like I said, he was going back and forth. He had His wife was still on the plantation, right. so we ascertained that she was probably um, a cook or something at high visible. Mm-hmm. That's why she could never run away. Mm-hmm. And then in the... In the uh, Gainesville band, we have what we call our primary 
um, black Seminole chief, and that was Abraham. Right. And he was the visor or the chief. Um, this is a, this is this Abraham. is Abraham. This 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 is Abraham right here. Y'all need to know about Abraham. <laughs> he is the he's the chief black Seminole. Yeah. Um, especially after Caesar dies in thirty five, he yeah. takes over. Um, he's the negotiator. Yeah. He speaks because Micanopy doesn't speak English well. Chief so Micanopy, right. Mm-hmm. Right, Chief mm-hmm. Micanopy mm-hmm. doesn't speak English well. Mm-hmm. So he's the main person negotiating yeah. um, with the government mm-hmm. and with um, the United States. And then there's a third band, and that's John, Go For John mm-hmm. or John Horse. Right. He's a lot younger. Mm-hmm. He's in his 20s. Right. Uh, but he is the son of a Seminole Native American chief. Right. But because his mother is black, he's still considered a black Seminole. He doesn't belong to a band. I mean, he doesn't belong to one of their bands. Mm -hmm. All right. So what happens is Abraham is the leader in Florida during the war. Mm -hmm. But John, because John Horse is a lot younger, he's also who he's right hand, his right hand is, places him in a higher category. Mm -hmm. He's Osceola's Mm -hmm. visor. Mm -hmm. He's Osceola's right hand. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I want to say this quickly, I think Osceola doesn't get the recognition that Geronimo, Sitting Bull, and Chief Joseph get is because of who he was. Mm -hmm. He had a black Seminole wife. Mm Mm-hmm. Most of the people in his his band, his war band, mm-hmm. were black Seminoles. Mm-hmm. So, so, in, so in these last ninety seconds, mm-hmm. I'd like for you to share w- again what was the you characterized this as the most successful slave rebellion. Yes. Um, talk about what was at stake and what was accomplished. Okay. Uh, what was at stake, of course, was re-enslavement and enslavement for some because we're talking two and three generations now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking people who yeah. had never known slavery now, just yeah. their grandfather. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that is, of course, the most important thing, yeah. right? But it was also the growth, the growth of plantation society itself. Yeah. Uh, we can trace, and i say it very quickly, each Seminole War, opened up Florida and Plantation Society, uh, or Florida Society, period, mm-hmm. by the time we get to the third. First Seminole War, two years after the first Seminole War ends, Florida becomes a territory. Mm-hmm. Then we had a second Seminole War, 1835-1842. Three years later, after the second Seminole War, after they decide that, okay, the blacks can go out west, we won't re-enslave you, which gives them the victory. Why I say it's a successful rebellion. Sure, sure. Florida becomes a state. Mm-hmm. Florida becomes the 45th state. Mm-hmm. And then the third Seminole War, they wanted to open up South Florida. Uh, they were even crazy enough to think that they could drain Lake Okeechobee <laughs> uh, right. just to flush them out. Sure. And so they went into a third war that ended in 1858. Mm-hmm. That war ended because they felt like the Seminole numbers were low enough mm-hmm. that they didn't have to worry about them impeding progress. Mm-hmm. So they were willing re- and able and ready to go into South Florida. But, of course, this ends in 58. They leave the Union. They go into the, and by 1861, they end war. And for those, and so, for those who were being, where genocide was being practiced against, yeah. They had to make the decision. Stay here and fight and know that we're going to be slaughtered right. or agree to move on. Right. And they move on and they live. And that's what kind of um, changed 
Abraham's leadership, yes. right? Because he has to negotiate. Yes. And of yes. course, they don't, you know, when yes. you negotiate, some people are not going to be happy. Mm -hmm. But the best thing was to negotiate that move to the Arkansas Territory, mm -hmm. present day, um, mm -hmm. present day uh, Oklahoma. Yeah. So uh, that was the best. That was the best choice. And most of them got on. Yeah. The one got on board with it, yeah. uh, such that, and this is important, by 1838, yeah. most black Seminoles were out. Yeah. And, and uh, after kicking a whole lot of U.S. military butt, they got to live another day. They got to live with freedom. With freedom. Thank you so much for coming, Dr. Dixon. Thank you. you got to bring me back. We got to talk more. Yes, more. Yes, we got to talk more. Thank you for joining us this evening. For more information about this program or any other program produced by WHUT, go to WHUT.org. Goodbye, and may God bless, and may you stay free. program was produced by WHUT, Howard University Television, and made possible by contributions from viewers like you. Thank you. Welcome back. And uh, that was an uh, interview uh, dealing uh, with the legacy of uh, the Black Seminole Wars, uh, which uh, ran from 1821 up to uh, 1858 against the United States government. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our following segment.
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Candy Staten and singing a tune entitled You're the Best Thing. I'm the Best Thing You've Ever Had. And um, right now we want to move into our Black Office uh, commemoration. This features a interview uh, by the BBC uh, on the Hard Talk program hosted by Stephen Sacker. And, of course, uh, this is the interview with Albert Woodfox. Uh, Albert Woodfox uh, joined the ancestors just several days ago at the age of 75. He died as a result of complications from the COVID-19 pandemic. He spent 43 years in solitary confinement at Angola Prison in the southern state of Louisiana, which was a former uh, slave plantation. Uh, Woodfox, in this interview, uh, talks about uh, his past, his uh, recruitment into the Black Panther Party, and, of course, the circumstances which led to his solitary confinement for 43 years. Let's listen in. You're listening to a podcast from the BBC World Service. This is Hard Talk with me, Stephen Sacker. Thanks for downloading this edition of the program. I do hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Hard Talk on the BBC World Service. I'm Stephen Sacker. Imagine spending 43 years of your life in shackles, confined to a bare cell measuring some three meters by two. Only for one hour out of every 24 would you be allowed to shuffle to an exercise area beyond your cell. And then imagine being a black inmate of one of America's most notorious prisons where brutality and racism were long-established norms and add the sense of burning injustice that comes with being convicted of a murder which the evidence suggests you did not commit. It is very hard to take in the bare facts of Albert Woodfox's experience in the Angola prison in Louisiana. He was released in February 2016, having spent 43 years and 10 months in solitary confinement. He went in as both a hardened criminal and a fervent supporter of the sometimes violent Black Panther movement. He emerged committed to peaceful activism in pursuit of racial equality and justice. He's living as a free man in the United States, but after an experience like his, what does that really mean? Well, Albert Woodfox joins me now. Welcome to Hard Talk. Thank you. Here you are in London as a free man. But given everything you have been through, is it possible for you to ever feel truly free? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, philosophically, mentally, emotionally, I was free long before my actual physical freedom occurred, yeah. And so that was a part of, I guess you could say, my survival, one of my many survival uh, techniques uh, to that allowed me to, uh, you know, survive being in solitary confinement for such a long period of time. I just wonder in terms of, literally in terms of muscle memory, the way your body is, whether you, your muscles remember four decades in shackles, whether you still have that feeling of being in an enclosed space of literally two meters by three, or, or has that left your body? Well, I still have claustrophobic attacks occasionally and uh, I guess there's several times I wake up and been disoriented you know because I'm used to getting up and seeing bars and stuff like that so you wake up and you see walls in the bedroom and stuff and for a brief moment 
I'm disorientated. You have had an awful long time to reflect on the course of your life. And I want to take you right back to near the beginning. You growing up in Louisiana as a young boy, you made choices. And you made some really bad choices, I guess one could say now. Looking back, why did you make those choices? Well, I was a young African-American kid growing up in the South uh, of the United States. Racism was blatant. The opportunities uh, from economic to political to social were almost non-existent. You know, if you if you denied access to society, if you denied opportunities and stuff, the instinct to survive is, you know, probably the strongest instinct we have. So it was almost predestined that I would turn to petty crime uh, to survive. I, if I may, I want to just read to you a little passage from, from your extraordinarily frank and honest book, Solitary, where you talk about being a youth growing up. I robbed people. I scared them, you say. I threatened them. I intimidated them. I stole from people who had almost nothing. They were my people, black people. I broke into their homes and took their possessions. I was a chauvinist pig, and I never thought about the pain I caused. Yeah. I made terrible choices. I mean, you know, there are things that I did that I will never be able to forgive myself for. And I will probably spend the rest of my life trying to atone, you know, for those things. But I was not a criminal. I thought I, was, I had to do criminal things to survive. And, you know, later on in life, you know, uh, because of the influence and joining the Black Panther Party, I began to understand how society functioned. I began to understand what, you know, uh, individual racism supported by institutional racism and the s systemic application of racism, how it affected my life individually and as a member of an African-American community. You, you talk about the Black Panthers, and I guess it was inside, actually inside a prison in New York, where yeah. you first really came face to face with, yes. with black men who were committed members of the Panther movement. Were you already aware of them? Were you already being drawn to that ideology, which was a, a sort of extremely strong black power ideology? Or, or, or was it meeting these people that changed your head? No, you know, uh, I guess there's a question as to whether the influence of the Black Panther Party awakened something that was already in me, uh, where, you know, the influence of the Black Panther Party raised my level of consciousness again, to where I began to understand uh, the forces around me, that I began to understand that there was certain policies from the government on down to, you know, uh, white America that pretty much determined uh, the course of my life. The Black Panthers talked a lot about justice and equality for black people in the United States after centuries of discrimination. Of course, slavery, but post-slavery, the discrimination continued. But there were also some Black Panthers who were clearly, explicitly committed to violence. Now, were you part of the movement that believed that violence was justified or not? Well, you know, like any organization, the organization has a goal, has, you know, uh, a perimeter in which they function in. Now, you, you know, there are going to be people that, uh, you know, that's in the organization that uh, 
you know, not going to adhere to the principles or the values of whatever, you know, organization you had. And I, you know, we had people like that in the party, but overall. But uh, just uh, what about you? I mean, because. Oh, no, me personally, no, I never. You know, my my experience as a party was in prison. You know, uh, Harmony and I formed the only recognized chapter, Black Panther Party in a prison. And so a lot of the stuff that happened with the party in society, we were not exposed to. I take your point because really your active involvement with the Black Panthers was all behind bars, and which takes us to Angola, that notorious prison in Louisiana where you ended up. I think 1971, you first walked through the gate into that jail and you did not leave it for more than four decades after. Before we get to solitary, just talk me through your first impressions of what has long been regarded as the most brutal, perhaps the most racist prison in the United States of America. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. You know, Angola had been designated by various social organizations, including government organizations, as being the bloodiest and, and most violent prison uh, in the United States at that time. Uh, almost every day, prisoners, is, uh, either by security or prison-on-prisoners uh, crime, you know, someone was stabbed, bludgeoned, or, or murdered. That was the type of environment that you were forced to survive. And it was segregated? Yes. And the staff, obviously, from the governor on down, but pretty much all of the staff were white. Yes. In Angola itself, you had about 300 personnel uh, in charge of about five, or 6,000 uh, prisoners. And what was unique about Angola is that it was a farmer's breeding slave plantation. Yeah, it had and, been a plantation yeah. throughout the course of the slave period. Yeah, and you still have uh, families that work there that go back generations and generations to slavery, to child slavery in, in, in America. And you, the black prisoners, were put to work in the fields? Mostly, yeah. I mean, there were a few jobs, janitorial jobs. Most of the what's called the uh, plum jobs went to the white prisons. Let's get to 1972, the murder of a young white prison guard Brent Miller. Did you do it? No. There's such an abundance of physical evidence that clearly says, you know, I was not involved in this murder. Or there were physical evidence. They found a bloody fingerprint in Mr. Miller's blood on the door. They never pursued it beyond comparing it to me and the other guys who were charged. And it didn't match any of the people that worked the crime scene. So it raises the very obvious question, why were you targeted by the authorities? Well, the prison staff, uh, both administrative and security, they were aware that Herman and I were members of the Black Panther Party. They was a, they yeah, were Herman, aware. There's Herman Wallace, who was yes. your friend, who was a fellow Black Panther, and you actually were explicit in the prison. You organized other prisoners. You, I think, formed what you called an anti-rape squad to try and control yes. the sexual assaults and abuse inside your wing of the prison. Yes. So you weren't hiding your Black Panther loyalty. No, and to be honest, we actually lasted longer than I thought. 
because there was an internal conflict, a new correctional uh, or DOC secretary, Department of Correction. And so Mr. Miller was murdered in that environment. So you are convicted of a crime which, of course, you insist, always insisted, you simply didn't commit. But the fact is, you were hauled off to that special part of the prison for the solitary confinement prisoners, and it began. Life in a cell of two meters by three, and I think everybody watching and listening to this will not be able to get their heads around what you then experienced for 43 years and 10 months. So try and capture it for me. Well, it's kind of hard to find words to imagine the horror of being confined to a nine feet long and six feet wide cell. And the actual space itself is much smaller because you have metal beds attached to the wall that take up a great part of the cell. You have a metal table and chair on the other wall, and you have a, a toilet bowl, a zinc combination in the back. So you have a very narrow path in which to maneuver up and down the cell. So uh, although the cell is nine feet long and six feet wide, the actual space is much smaller. Try to stay in your bedroom 23 hours. Go in your backyard and draw a nine feet, six feet uh, a square, and you stay in there for 23 hours. Now, I multiply that a million times. And to add to that, you know that there's absolutely nothing you can do can change the situation you're in. And add to that the attitude and behavior of the guards who are responsible for you, because that was a huge element in the, let's use the word, torture yeah. that not, was imposed not, not, upon you. You know, not only, well, at that time, uh, now they refer to him as correctional officer, but at, at that time they referred to him as free men. And you add to that uh, inmate guard system, these guys were brutal. They used physical violence against other prisoners. They beat them, they gassed them, they put them in the... Now they had pretty much the same power and authority as the uh, free men, as they were referred to, who worked there. And uh, they never hesitated to use uh, the power they had. But if I may say so, as you have said since, you and, and Herman, your great friend who was locked up in solitary in the same place as you, me and Herman, we didn't put up with all the racist comments. If they talked trash to us, we talked trash back to them just as bad. I forced myself to learn how not to give in to the fear. I would not let fear rule me. But as a result, you got the pain and the brutality even worse. Yeah, well, we were singing out, uh, you know, they referred to us as troublemakers and, and ringleaders. They had no idea the political foundation or the philosophy that we did the things we did, uh, what motivated us to fight against injustice, inhumanity, uh, horrible physical conditions, uh, you know, lack of clothing, lack of adequate food. If I had to, if I asked you right now, looking back, what was the worst thing, the thing that really got closest to breaking you? Well, that would be my mother's death. With all that I went through, what all happened to me, I never came close to, to being broken. Uh, when I lost my mom in 94 to cancer, 
uh, there was a policy in place in which you could go home, uh, you know, for the funeral. In African-American families, it's very important to be able to say that final goodbye. And that usually occurs at a wake or a funeral. And because of who I am, because of uh, they had signaled me out as a troublemaker, uh, I was denied uh, that rank. So I had delivered that burden for 20-something years. Uh, fortunately, before my mom passed away, uh, my life had changed tremendously. Uh, I, the transformation from a petty criminal to a political uh, social activist had occurred, and I was in the process of constantly educating and re-educating myself. And I used the term raising my level of consciousness. So I was able to thank her for the things that she, the, the values and the principles that she tried to instill in me and to tell her that she was my, my first hero. And as you say, you did an awful lot of reading in prison. You became something of a legal expert. You looked at so many legal books. You launched so many appeals. And you did actually deliver some change to the prison regime while you were there. And thanks also to people working outside on your behalf. There were various different appeals against the conviction. And finally, in 2016, you didn't get the exoneration you were looking for, but you got a the offer of a, a plea deal. It's called an alpha plea. Yeah. It's a plea that does not admit guilt, but admits that the state has enough evidence to bring you to trial. Because you had always said, I will walk out of here when I am declared an innocent man. And you were not. Yeah, I mean, I, I still have problems with it. You know, there are times when, you know, I feel very angry, and there are times when I'm disappointed that I took, you know, the plea deal because for my whole life I had taught men to fight, to stand for what was right. And and I tried to do it by not just words but examples. And so in the final analysis, you know, I accepted this plea deal. And I, there were many factors involved. But I think that the one factor is... Uh, a conversation I had with my brother. He was visiting with my daughter, and she broke down crying, and he asked her what was wrong. She said, well, I don't have a daddy. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, you have a daddy, and, uh, you know, the things he has accomplished in the prison system, I think you would be very proud of him. She said, no, I, I don't know what it is to call him daddy and to get a response. I don't know what it is for him to hold me in his arms and comfort me when when I'm troubled, you know, and, and, and I, don't, I don't know if I'll ever experience that. So that was kind of like the tipping point of the mental, emotional battle that I was waging back and forth with myself. And, and you do have that now. You can yes. hug your daughter and your grandchildren, grandchildren and, and your great-grandchildren. <laughs> That's right. You can do all of that. But you were released and now live as a free man in the United States of America where there is still clear racial injustice at the heart of the criminal justice system. One only has to look at the statistics on rates of incarceration. One only has to look at what happens to too many young black people, particularly young black men, in their experiences with the police in different parts of your country. Yes. How does that make you feel after everything you've been through? 
You know, when I was released from prison, it took me about three weeks of being, you know, in society to realize that nothing had changed. That the change but I want to be clear America. about it. You say nothing had changed. Nothing. The racism was still a part of the very fiber of American society. And that the brutality of racism had not changed in its application. It just said change in the high was black. But I'm mindful that you walked out in the very year that Barack Obama served his last year as president of the United States of America, the first black man to hold that position. Can you really say to me nothing had changed in 44 years? Technology. You know, look, I was in prison when President Obama was elected. My reality was that nothing would change. You know, this is one man. We have a culture of racism and bigotry and white supremacy that go back to the founding of, of America. And, you know, you one man just can't change that in eight years. That's the longest period of time he would be allowed to be president. Will it change? I just wonder what you say to your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, because you speak as a guy who, all those years ago, committed to the Black Panther movement to achieve what you regarded as justice for black people in America. How do you think your grandchildren and great-grandchildren should carry out that struggle, if you still see it as a struggle? Well, yeah, I think it's a social struggle. Uh, matter of fact, yeah, it's one of the personal motivations for me. I don't want my great-grandkids 30 years from now to be sitting here being interviewed uh, on a stage talking to people about racism and institutional racism and systemic application of racism. You know, as Martin Luther King said, I would rather like to be, hopefully a society has evolved to the point where they are judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin, not their ethnicity, not physical features or hair texture. I, I, let me ask you this. It's a different sort of question, but it's on the same theme. Are you proud of your country today? My country, yes. My government, no. And a last thought, and this I find absolutely remarkable about you and, and the strength of your mind. You say that when you consider everything that happened to you in your life, and I mean everything, you say, I wouldn't change one thing. All I went through made me the man I am today. Do you yeah. really mean that, that you yeah. wouldn't, on reflection, take different decisions that would have avoided those 44 years in solitary confinement? No. I wouldn't change a thing because, for one thing, I didn't just survive a solitary confinement. I prospered as a human being. I developed uh, moral principles, values, a code of conduct, a discipline. I self-educated myself. All the things that society had denied me as a human being, I was either able to provide myself in a hostile and isolated environment. And so, no, I, I wouldn't change a thing. You know, uh, as painful as it has been, as brutal as it has been, uh, the beatings, the gassing, the being forced to drink out of the toilet because they turned the water off while I was in the dungeon, you know, all the, all the things I went through, it helped build me uh, and shape, you know, the man I am today. And, I, you know, uh, my mom used to always tell me, uh, 
boy, you know, always be proud of what you look at in the mirror each morning. And so far, I've had, I think the way I've conducted myself and the way I've transformed myself and the things I believe in and, and involved in, I, uh, every morning I'm very proud of what looks back at me. Albert Woodfox, it has been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. That was an edition of Hard Talk presented by me, Stephen Sacker. For details of our complete range of podcasts and our terms of use, go to bbcworldservice.com forward slash podcasts. Welcome back. And uh, that was a very important uh, interview uh, by Albert Woodfox, veteran uh, political prisoner, member of the Black Panther Party, being interviewed over the British Broadcasting Corporation in 2019 by Stephen Sacco on the Hard Talk program. As we mentioned earlier, uh, Albert Woodfox uh, passed away uh, several days ago from complications of COVID-19. He was in New Orleans, uh, Louisiana. Uh, he was 75 years old. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast, a special edition of our program. This is uh, Black August, and of course, we're here every week, uh, and uh, we'd like to take a break right now. We'll be back with our concluding segment of our program for today.
Welcome back, and uh, that was the voice of the legendary uh, Phyllis Hyman with the song entitled When I Give My Love This Time, and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, August 7th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And, of course, uh, one of the uh, major uh, issues involving U.S. foreign policy during this period uh, is efforts uh, to thwart the influence and the growth of uh, the People's Republic of China. Uh, this is being done uh, through attempted military buildups uh, in uh, the region around China, in the south and east uh, China seas. It's also being done on a propaganda level and on a diplomatic level. Of course, we saw uh, several days ago the virtually secret visit uh, by United States House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, to uh, Taiwan, a breakaway uh, country uh, from the mainland People's Republic of China. And, of course, uh, on a propaganda level, there is the myth of uh, Chinese uh, debt traps in Africa and imperialistic behaviors in Africa uh, towards uh, African development. This uh, next report, interestingly enough, was done by Bloomberg, uh, which is a leading Wall Street uh, financial uh, publication. Let's listen to uh, Bloomberg, uh, and they're, in fact, uh, deconstructing a myth of the Africa-China debt trap. Let's listen in. In the past two decades, China has built large infrastructure projects in almost every country in Africa. And this has made Western critics uncomfortable. China and Africa can forge an even stronger comprehensive strategic and cooperative partnership. A common portrayal of China's lending practices is known as debt trap diplomacy, a phrase made popular after being used in government documents during the Trump administration. The so-called debt trap is created when a country lends to poorer countries, intentionally overwhelming them with unsustainable debt forcing them to surrender strategic assets or concede increased political leverage. But so far, there's no evidence that such a debt trap has been sprung in Africa. Now, there's always a certain grain of truth, like with every stereotype to it, but it breaks down very, very quickly upon any type of serious examination. The focus on debt trap diplomacy is part of wider Western anxieties towards China in Africa. We've already seen that Chinese investments and Chinese infrastructure projects have been linked to increasing Chinese influence within the host country ruling elite. That may end up becoming somewhat of a leverage point for China to push some of these countries or ruling elites to side with China on critical issues that are important to the U.S. or to its allies. But while the U.S. has focused its Africa strategy on aid and social services, China has been building. African governments themselves said we are tired of aid and charity. We want to do trade. We want to be treated like partners. The Chinese came along and said, great, we don't do aid and charity. We want to do business with you. Global Gateway will mobilize 300 billion euros till 2027. Now the U.S. and Europe are answering back with their own infrastructure initiatives to counter China. But African experts are skeptical. At the end of the day, China has been that guy around the corner with, you know, a bouquet of flowers to Africa, the US, you know, Europe and the UK, 
have time and time again said, be careful of the flowers you see out of the window, they have thorns on them. In Ghana, the handover of power from the British government went off smoothly and with dignity. From the 1950s into the 1970s, countries on the African continent gained independence from their European colonizers. U.S. and European-led organizations like the IMF and the World Bank funded much-needed infrastructure across the continent. But that slowly stopped. The United States and Europe kind of backed away from infrastructure in the 60s and 70s. It's something that, that we did very, very well for a long time in the post-war era. We built vast amounts of infrastructure throughout the world. And one of the things you see in Africa is that so much of the railways and the highways and the infrastructure was built during the colonial period. Uh, and back then it was quite solid, but it's been decrepit because the former colonial governments are not plowing in lots of money. Enter China. As early as the 1970s, Beijing began building the Tazara Railway, a link between the Zambian town of Kapiriamposhi and Dar es Salaam port in Tanzania. At the time, it was the longest railway in sub-Saharan Africa, allowing Zambia to ship copper, bypassing white rural Rhodesia and South Africa. It also gave China much-needed political allies. Beijing said, we have problems, you have problems, we will help you out and they embarked on this. And this is really some of the early seeds uh, that China sowed in Africa that later, you know, came to clearly define the divide between the West and, and the East as far as China's involvement in Africa is concerned. In the early 2000s, as China looked to expand markets and political influence abroad, its investment in Africa ramped up. The Chinese said, well, guess what? We are the best in the world now at producing large-scale infrastructure fast and cheap. And we have a surplus of capital. So we'll loan you the money. We have our great contracting companies. We have all of this skill and all this ability to deliver fast and cheap. And in that sense, it was really an ideal match. They recognized what Africa's development stage was. And they said, you know what? 30 years ago, that was us. We recognize a lot of what's going on here. You don't have enough infrastructure. You have a large population that's growing quickly. Also, let's not underestimate, there is a shared history here of anti-colonial struggle. So you tick all of those different boxes and Africa made a lot of sense for the Chinese to come in. China is currently involved in an estimated 35 African countries and has made significant contributions to their infrastructure, including ports, railways and power plants. It's estimated that China has invested more than $340 billion in Africa. So compared to how much China is investing across the world, this may not be as much, but for Africa it's a lot of money because of the huge infrastructure gap uh, that Africa faces. But there are noticeable differences between Chinese financing and how the West lends, historically with low interest rates and flexible terms. There must be over millions of different types of loans out there. But if you were to take an eagle's eye view of the different kinds of loans involving Chinese lenders, then you can broadly categorize them into three different types. The loans fall into three categories. Zero interest loans offered as aid, concessional loans which have a lower interest rate often intended for large infrastructure projects, 
and the most common, commercial loans, with higher interest rates in line with what you would get from a typical private bank. One of the very interesting trends that we see when researchers discuss Chinese loans is that there is a tendency to bunch all three together. Well, the very first question you should ask yourself whenever you see something like that is, well, are they comparing apples to oranges? Because if you're comparing commercial loans to something available from the World Bank or one of its different agencies, then you're not really comparing like for like. And the fact of the matter is this, and I hope the borrowers out there are listening, 95%, if not 99%, of the loan agreements are there in favor of the lenders, no matter who you deal with. This is because by the time you sign that loan agreement and you get the money, you'll have the money in your hands, and the only thing the bank will have is a piece of paper. That is why the loan agreements are in their favor. In one report which analyzed 100 Chinese contracts, it revealed that the loans are structured to give an advantage over other creditors and allows action to be taken if the borrower acts contrary to the interests of a People's Republic of China entity. There are also unusual clauses that shroud agreements in secrecy. When you look at multilateral lenders like the World Bank and the different agencies, their shareholders are countries and they're required to publish their lending and activities just to be transparent. They don't have any choice. On the other hand, when you come to commercial banks, then you'll see a very different case. And that is, banks often are under a duty of confidentiality to their clients. I think the Chinese banks are no different. But the rush to give out loans by the Chinese has meant some of their early investments weren't as profitable as projected. So when China stepped into the field, it was much welcomed by the developing world that there would be increased financing for infrastructure. However, with the rush to get projects off the ground, to put them into action and to begin construction, critical due diligence was often left by the wayside. Financial sustainability, social and environmental sustainability assessments kind of never were done or were done haphazardly or were simply not transparent or available to the populations. What this has ended up causing is states to take on projects that they initially thought were affordable, but unfortunately, they've been now saddled by debt. China is coming for its pound of flesh in Uganda. In 2021, the Entebbe International Airport in Uganda came under fire after local media reported that the airport would be taken over by China. We call this a debt trap. After closer examination of the contract, it was found there was no debt trap and both sides have denied that the airport is in danger of a takeover. I think there is an assumption that certain governments are not able to look after themselves or they're not either not sophisticated enough or, or just simply too corrupt to look after its own interests. I think in my personal view and experience, that just simply hasn't been true. Experts say more should be done by borrowing countries to make sure loans are more favorable to their interests. But the Chinese argue that the risk level is higher in African countries and greater repayment assurances are needed for loans that might not otherwise be available. Certainly in my 20 years of experience, I've never seen a case where the Chinese bank would just say, look, don't read this, just sign up the dotted line. In fact, they will spend days and days and they're sitting with us going through every line of the document and making sure the other side understands because they know in 10 years' time, if they don't explain this clearly, this is going to come back and haunt them. Certainly, 
There are issues with how China finances projects. There are issues around transparency. But I don't think this is some sort of grand master plan from Beijing in order to ensnare developing countries into debt and become further beholden to Beijing. In Kenya and Nigeria, debts to Beijing are growing. These include Kenya's $3.6 billion railway from Mombasa to Nairobi, which reportedly lost $200 million in three years of operation, and a $1.3 billion loan from the China Exim Bank to fund Nigeria's largest infrastructure project, a 157-kilometer segment of the Lagos-Kano Railway. The government itself can't afford to finance these things. The private sector isn't really stepping up. The West has not got an alternative uh, program, so therefore China is the only game in town and the terms of the loans are reasonable. At the same time, you have members of the National Assembly, particularly from the main opposition party, vocally criticizing the government for what they perceive to be a lack of transparency around the management of the loans from China. They often um, articulate this uh, worry that you hear in other parts of Africa that uh, China will try and seize Nigerian assets in the event of a default by the Nigerian government. But looking closer at Kenya and Nigeria's total public debt, it doesn't appear that China's in a position to use the debt it's owed as leverage. In Kenya, Chinese loans account for about 10% of the country's $70 billion total debt. And it's even less acute in Nigeria, where the Chinese debts are just about 3 to 4%. So again, we have to focus on the data as it is, not as these narratives and these storytelling, which, which we have these fantasies that Kenya is going to be taken over by the Chinese. One country cannot control another country just by owning 4 to 10% of its debt. Only a handful of countries on the African continent have a significant amount of debt owed to China, and most of them owe much more to private bond markets. Africa does not have a Chinese debt problem. Angola weights about a third of all Chinese debt in Africa. So take Angola out of the issue, then you have an even less serious problem in that respect. So it's very important that we narrow down this problem to be what it is. But it only takes one bad deal to affirm Western fears. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, a controversial method of borrowing based on future natural resource revenue has meant some projects have fallen victim to corruption. Congo has a very, very significant uh, mining industry. It's Africa's biggest producer of copper. It's by far the world's biggest producer of cobalt. Cobalt is a key ingredient in the rechargeable batteries that power electric vehicles. You hear politicians talk about Congo saying that we are to cobalt as Saudi Arabia is to oil. However, up until now at least, the um, benefits to government revenue and the benefits to the population at large have been uh, rather limited. In 2008, China and the Democratic Republic of Congo agreed that Chinese companies would finance $3 billion worth of infrastructure and build a $3.2 billion copper and cobalt project whose tax-free profits would repay both investments. China, with the help of these mines, has now come to dominate an industry at the heart of future technologies. And leaked documents reveal millions of dollars that flow from Chinese entities, including the multi-billion dollar mining project, 
to the family and associates of Congo's then president, Joseph Kabila. If the example of Congo applies elsewhere, these companies operate uh, with a real deliberate lack of transparency and if they find a willing partner in a government, as they did in Joseph Kabila's government, this lack of transparency can uh, extend to and really envelop the relationship between the state and these mining companies. There is a lot of anxiety in the West over China's involvement anywhere really, because it's a strong number two to the US. And, uh, you know, being a superpower and China having very strong links uh, with Africa, uh, setting up a lot of logistical supply chains uh, in Africa, preparing to expand uh, its trade and take it to, to the next level is worrisome because whatever happens in Africa or whatever happens in Asia ultimately can affect the world order. There's a lot at stake. Ideology may also be on the line. Countries that receive help from the US or European multilateral development banks often require values that fall in line with democratic nations. Anti-corruption, good governance, transparency, participation, inclusion. These are things that really matter. We should want projects that are beneficial to the populations, that don't negatively affect them. And so while it may hinder the US in being able to lend to certain countries, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. When countries in Africa take help from China, they're expected to side with or at least not participate in the condemnation of China on key issues including Taiwan and allegations of forced labor in Xinjiang. On these sensitive red line issues, and Taiwan is certainly one of them, this is where the political relationship uh, becomes more evident and much more important. Africa, more than almost any other region in the world, tends to vote as a bloc in major international organizations and tends to express itself as a group, if not the whole continent. And again, this is the political symbolism that's becoming increasingly important to China from a region like Africa that is so important to the Chinese, much more so in many ways than the resources, which again, aren't as important to China simply because they can buy the resources now from any number of other places. But getting this kind of political support is very important in today's geopolitical environment. We want to show that a democratic, value-driven approach can deliver on the most pressing challenges. While the US and Europe haven't attempted to try and match China's investment on the continent, they have started work to offer alternatives. The EU's Global Gateway aims to supply 300 billion euros globally between 2020 and 2027. And Build Back Better World, or B3W, from the US aims to address the infrastructure needed in developing countries. Democracies are messy. Things take time in democracy. So while authoritarian regimes such as China are able to speed up the process, are able to get things done quicker, that doesn't mean it's of a better quality. And I think that's really where the U.S. and others, and through the B3W initiative, can really make a difference is by actually developing and building high-quality infrastructure. We believe in the nations of Africa, in the continent-wide spirit of entrepreneurship and innovation. 
Yet skeptics of U.S. and European-led projects say they're aimed at specifically targeting Chinese influence rather than working with African countries as business partners. And they lack specific information that have many wondering whether or not they'll result in significant action in Africa. When you talk to the Chinese, they will tell you that we have come along with Africa, both culturally and economically. We have had similar problems as Africa and we want to help them grow because they were in a position where we were. In Africa, you know, the Africans will tell you we need the money. We have a huge infrastructure gap and uh, it doesn't matter whether the money is blue or red. As long as it can do the job, we will uh, accept it. When we talk to you know, some of the economists that follow China and the African governments, they will tell you that there has been benefit for this project overall for Africa. How they have been uh, done, uh, the terms, as well as how these projects have been got, you know, is another story. Welcome back, and uh, that was a very interesting report, um, which originated, interestingly enough, from Bloomberg, and uh, really obliterates the uh, myth and the falsehood and the outright lies and Cold War propaganda of uh, a purported uh, African debt trap at the aegis of the People's Republic of China. To conclude our program uh, for today, uh, you've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, Special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, August 7, 2022. We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan African Newswire, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. Just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to be closing out uh, with the music of Horace Silver. Uh, this is uh, from an album entitled Serenade uh, to a Soul Sister. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. Mm-hmm.